Hi, this is David Pepos, the writer of Spencer and Locke, and you're listening to Adrian Has Issues. everybody welcome adrian has issues today's guest is pretty awesome so let's see i mean you're a comic book writer colorist letterer based out of portland oregon and you've written comics for dc such as injustice ground zero suicide squad and you've also co-written captain marvel and detective comics and actually as of today your first solo writing gig for marvel uh johnny plays ghost writer with art by phil noto and you've also done some creator owned stuff let's see there's heartthrob for Ronnie press House of Muck for Black Crown, and two recent announced titles. Well, there's Shanghai Red, which you're doing with Josh Hickson and Nassan Atzmain Elihu, and also another book coming out this summer for Emerge entitled Crowded with Rose Stein, Ted Brandt, Trina Farrell, and Cardinal Ray. And you've also written some zines for a series entitled Dumpster Knot. Please welcome to the show Christopher Sabella. Christopher, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. I know it took a while there, but we were able to make it work, so it's going to be a good time. Yeah, and I'm I'm a freelancer, so I got nothing but time on my hands, really. You know what? Freelancers work just as hard as anybody else, so don't let anybody tell you differently. Oh, no. I just mean, you know, I can usually be around when people need me to be around. I should be working at the time, but I can be there. <laughs> Considering that most of my guests are creators, and, you know, that time is very important. So the fact that you're able to take any out of it to talk to me, I value highly. So, again, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. No problem going through your bio you've written some amazing comics but even before that you know you've also started as a journalist and considering that i talk a lot about comics on the show i'm a big fan of origin stories so as far as like your writing career if you want to kind of take it back even prior to comics you know where'd you get your start my first published stuff was all in journalism um back when i lived in kansas city missouri I mean, I knew I always wanted to write, but, you know, I was always kind of afraid of, I guess, approaching writing as a full-time job. So it was just a thing that I worked on on the side. And so journalism was easy because everything I was doing were like very small pieces um, and I could fit them in after my day job. And I was making actual money off of uh, writing, which was pretty cool. But yeah, flash forward uh, and I had been freelancing as a graphic designer for a couple of years and the economy was starting to tank back in like 2009. Right. And basically I had to make a decision that I knew I wasn't a good enough graphic designer to really make it last, but I thought I was a good enough writer that if I wanted to go for it, I should probably go for it now or never. <laughs> so yeah, I basically took like half my savings, moved to Portland because I knew there were two, you know, Dark Horse and Oni Press were here and there were a bunch of comics people here. And I was like, I'm just going to move to Portland and try to break into comics. And, uh, you know, I got here in 2010 and I didn't really start as a full-time writer until 2014. So there was a lot of struggle in between but then uh yeah i finally kind of landed on my feet and i've been writing comics full-time since 2014 
something I think is kind of wonderful is, you know, you always kind of hear that story of someone maybe from like the Midwest coming out to like Hollywood to try to like make it into the film industry or something like that. But I kind of like that idea of like just doubling down and realizing, you know, I want to be a writer. I'm going to move to where that can happen. So needless to say, I, I guess it's like, hey, you know what? It might have taken you a couple of years, but you're able to pull it off. Yeah. I mean, I never believed in that whole, you know, if you have a dream and you go out and pursue it, then you will achieve it. I was always just like, yeah, okay. Like, that's a nice thought. (laughs) Uh, I'm a born cynic. So I was just like, yeah, okay, that's not going to work. But uh, yeah, it's the one time that I was just like, you know what, I'm going to try this and hopefully it works out. And if it doesn't, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And it luckily worked out. I was actually listening to, oh gosh, I can't remember what it was. I think I might have been one of Kevin Smith's podcasts where, um, I think it was Scott Mojo's producer kind of had this really cool, interesting aside when he told his parents that, um, you know, he was going to go into movies and he's like, well, what are you going to do if that doesn't work out? And he's like, well, I'm going to be a homeless person. Cause it was that point and it was like, there's no other option. Like it has to work. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much where I was at. You know, I'd gotten a degree in college in psychology, but I'd never done anything with it. By the time I graduated, I was like, well, this is all made up. So I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't interested in it anymore. And basically to do anything with a psychology degree, like you have to go and get a master's and a right. doctorate. So I was like, nah, I'm good. I mean, I remember telling my mom, yeah, I'm going to like try and write comics. And she's like, what? <laughs> I, was just like, <laughs> I was like, I know, I know it sounds weird, but I think I can do it. And she was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And it wasn't until... I think it it wasn't until I got like nominated for the Eisners and I explained to her what Eisners are that she was like, oh, okay, like maybe I can stop worrying a little bit about you. <laughs> you know, Siegel still does, but my parents like that because comics, as much as they've been growing and expanding ever so rapidly, I, I still feel that, you know, to this very day, as of us having this conversation, we're still having to explain to the world at large that comics are not only viable, but they're also a thing. And I mean, we know that. And, and you know, anybody know, but to kind of say to somebody uninitiated, yeah, I'm going to go work in comics for a living. And it's like, well, wait, what? Why? <laughs> There's that initial, it's not even necessarily like, I don't want you to do that. It's more confusion. Like what are comics? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think if I had told her like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, try and become a novelist. Like, I think she would have been a little more supportive, but she would have been just as worried. So, (laughs) But since it's just happened, you know, I want to touch a little bit on Ghost Rider, uh, considering that, like I said, this is your solo book from Marvel that just came out today. First off, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. No, it feels pretty neat. How's that been? Is that kind of like a bucket list item to even write from Marvel, let alone Ghost Rider, considering that you were saying yourself that you weren't even sure if you were going to pull it off? No, I mean, definitely, like, since I've gotten into comics, you know, I did co-write some Marvel stuff with some friends of mine. Those were very much pity hires. Those were very much like, hey, my buddy's not doing very well in comics, and I'm a little overstressed, so why don't you come help me write Captain Marvel for a couple issues? Which I appreciated then and now, but, like, yeah, I've just kind of been waiting to be like, hey, Marvel, I can write something on my own. So, yeah, finally getting the call. And then for it to be Ghost Rider was just like icing on the cake because I love Ghost Rider. And I mean, I remember picking up the first issue of the Danny Catch series as a kid. So, yeah, I mean, getting to work on that and then like being told like, well, here's what the setup is. And basically, 
you know, you're going to tell the story of Ghost Rider arriving in hell and then figuring out how to take it over and then taking it over. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I don't, you know, it was like any continuity they gave me was like that all happened before the book starts. So I just got to do like a cool 20 page story about uh, Ghost Rider taking over hell. If someone gave me that premise to work with, that's almost like here's a Ferrari. Just drive it. You know what? You don't have to pay insurance. Just just run with it. Except like it's more of a spaceship because and you're like you're super excited to hop in and fly it. But then you're like, I don't know what to do. Like, <laughs> bas- like they hand you the keys and they don't tell you how to drive it. And it's like you have to like figure out, OK, I only have 20 pages to do this. And, you know, it's like my first time doing something for Marvel. So I don't want to write something crappy. Right. So, yeah, it was just like, yeah, the pressure was really doubled up. Like, as much fun as I had, I spent a lot of time like, oh, crap, I only have 20 pages to do all this in. And like, yeah, it was super fun, but also it's like super, super nerve wracking. No, no doubt. I can imagine. And something that I talk about a lot with guests on the show is the creative process and the steps they take to script a story. And I mean, we don't necessarily have to go point for point, but I figured since we're talking about Ghost Rider and, you know, saying not really sure of how to approach it, can you give a little bit of insight as how you did approach the story? I mean, it's basically the same way I approach all my stuff, which is the first thing I do is I... So for work for hire stuff, I just have sort of a general purpose notebook for that. But for all my creator own books, I have a specific composition notebook for them. So I just crack the notebook open and I sit down and I basically just barf out every idea I have for whatever I'm working on. So for Ghost Rider, it was like, okay, what can I do? Write all the possibilities down. And then you get super excited by some of them. And then you realize like, oh, I only have 20 pages, so I can't do that. So, yeah, basically, it's first it's the idea dump. Then you start to, you know, it's like, uh, I think it's like carving a, a chainsaw statue or something. It's like. <laughs> I've never heard that analogy before. That's <laughs> kind of amazing. <laughs> but it, it kind of is because, like, you know, you're just, like, sort of hacking away at this big piece of wood. Right. And at first, it's just like, well, he's just cutting up some wood. And then the deeper you get, then you start, like, sort of carving out, you know, well, here's the face and here's the blah, blah, blah. Um so, yeah, I mean, that's how it feels to me is like, yeah, I just I put everything down and then I throw out the stuff that like is cool but won't work or is just like too big. And I just narrow everything down to something. And then from there, I try to write out an outline to myself that's just like, OK, here's how it starts. Here's what happens in the middle. Here's how it ends. And then I do it again, this time page by page. So I just write one to 20 along the side of the notebook And then I write down what happens on every page. And sometimes I'll do that part two or three times until I'm sure I have it down and I've solved any weak spots that I might be having or parts that I'm like bored with. And by that point, I've basically done uh, 60% of the work in writing. So once I sit down and actually start writing, it's usually pretty easy because I've done all the, the sort of hard thinking stuff beforehand, which is helpful. So do you apply a slightly looser strategy when it comes to your creator own titles? No, I mean, it's about the same, really. Like, you know, the the goal is to first allow myself any and all possibilities and then to, you know, sort of decide what works and what doesn't. And then, you know, just kind of ease everything into an actual story where you have room enough to have the characters sort of be themselves 
and interact with one another as well as having like big action scenes or other stuff. So, I mean, with creator owned, usually I have more pages to do it with. I mean, like on my image books, you know, we sort of get to pick our page count, which is really nice. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've been going about 24 pages an issue for my image stuff, which really like kind of lets it breathe a little bit more. Process-wise, I can't treat the creator-owned any differently because, like, I think my whole workload, like, the amount of stuff that I've taken on only works if I treat everything as the same thing, basically. So, but that also means, like, I can't half-ass it on a work-for-hire thing that, like, maybe I'm not crazy into because at the end of the day, it's still my book and it has my name on it and... I don't have access to the switch in my head that would just allow me to go like, eh, I'm just going to like barf this one out and who cares? I sweat over everyone exactly the same. Well, yeah, I'd imagine that most creators wouldn't necessarily go into a for hire work spinning their wheels because your name's attached to it. Mm-hmm. That could turn away new readers or even existing readers. So that does make a lot of sense the way you phrase that. Yeah, I mean, even the weirdest work for hire stuff I've taken on, like the only reason I said yes to it is because I was invested in the story I wanted to tell. And I feel like if you don't have that, then readers can tell. They can tell when you're like disengaged from a story and you kind of just don't care. Right. Well, speaking of creator owned titles, two I want to hit on specifically are Shanghai Red. I love that title, by the way. Thanks. That and Crowded, which are two books that have been recently announced for Image. So um, I don't know which one you want to start with first, though, but get a little bit into um, what both of these books are about. Uh, We'll start with Shanghai, since that comes out sooner. We updated the info, so the first issue comes out in June. But basically, Shanghai Red is a a revenge story set in, like, the middle 1890s in Portland, Oregon, which used to be the... Shanghai capital of the world, which is basically where, you know, people would get tricked into working on boats. Uh, either they'd get drugged or knocked out or they would get, you know, tricked into signing bad contracts and basically wake up on a boat that was like heading for China. And they were stuck there for the next year or two years until their contract ended. So that's the world it's set in. And our main character, she accidentally got kidnapped and put on a boat while dressed as a man. So not only is she like stuck on this boat and Shanghai sailors were, you know, they were the indentured slaves of the ship. So they got all the abuse and sort of all the worst jobs. So while she's trying to survive, she's also like trying to hide herself inside this like male persona of hers. So there's all these layers. And basically in, in our first issue, she snaps and kills every sailor on the boat except for her fellow Shanghai sailors and then turns the boat around head and heads back to Portland because she wants to find every person responsible for putting her on that boat and separating her from her family um, and, and get her revenge. So yeah, it's a short little nasty revenge story. <laughs> Which are my favorite kinds of revenge stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like we get in, get out and it's all set Amongst the backdrop of like real stuff, you know, like Portland was a big Shanghai town and like the city government was in on it. Like Portland was wildly corrupt. You know, Josh and I did a ton of research to make sure that, you know, what we were doing was actually as close to factually correct as we could get it. You know, I like I always like to base my stuff on some layer of truth. And for this one, like 
we really did a ton of research because it's very historically based, but without being boring, you know, like we don't stop and, and explain like, well, here's how Portland came to be. It's just like, no, like we'll show you how things work in the background while, you know, dudes are getting stabbed or shot. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's like Assassin's Creed that way. Like you can learn stuff, but mostly you're there to watch people get stabbed. See, that's what we need though. An Assassin's Creed set in like Portland, you know, they've done revolutionary war, which is cool, <clears throat> but you're like, let's start it in like some smaller towns because yes, it may not necessarily be as huge historically, but you know what? I feel like, the premise could work pretty much anywhere in any yeah. developing, like, you know, United States territory. For sure. I'm into that. <laughs> Probably like Assassin's Creed during the gold rush. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty good. I'm in that. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to just stab people over gold nuggets, but you know what? Oh, crap. Now that I said that out loud, shoot. You know what? Uh, Copyright Adrian, hopefully they'll give me some credit once they make that game. Because, yep. you know, it's clearly happening after Ancient Egypt. Oh, yeah, yeah. I still need to play that one, too. Like, once I get an extra 40 hours in my life. <laughs> I don't even have an extra 40 hours and video games sap up enough of it. Yeah. I, I don't know how I still have a relationship. She loves the hell out of me. <laughs> now, I guess moving to crowded, which is um, like I said, well, the tentative date was summer 2018. Yeah. Um, so um, give a little bit of um, backstory to this one. Uh, so crowded is set. Uh, I keep calling it 10 minutes in the future. And it takes place in an America where there is a basically a Kickstarter for assassinations called Reaper. And uh, so Reaper started when uh, like four million people all gave money to fund like the assassination of like a high level cabinet member in the U.S. government. Um, ever since then like they tried to crack down on it and it just went underground and now it's become this sort of cottage industry and they can't stop it so now it's like you know if if a director screws up a franchise that you love or you know a politician says something you hate a bunch of people can all go online and give money to a campaign to have them assassinated. And basically anybody out there who wants to claim the goal, they just have to go and kill the person and provide proof that they killed them and they get the money wired to them. So from there, it's now bled down to street level. So now any sort of petty argument between people can get resolved by opening a Reaper campaign on them. So, you know, like the barista at your coffee shop keeps screwing up your order or um, your ex is just really getting on your nerves. You can go and open a Reaper campaign on them. And as long as one other person gives money then the campaign is live for the next like 30, 45 or 60 days. So our whole story centers on this girl, Charlie, who wakes up one morning and discovers she has a campaign open on her. Over a thousand people have already given money and it's already over a million dollars. So she has to hire a bodyguard from this like Uber like app for bodyguards called Defend. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so, yeah, it's her and her bodyguard Vita basically trying to keep her alive and trying to figure out who opened a campaign on her and why. What was the inspiration behind that one? Because it feels like that touches on a couple of things, but obviously I don't want to make assumptions. Mm hmm. No, I mean, here's the thing is like I had the germ of that idea, which was basically a Kickstarter for assassinations. I mean, I had that probably five or six years ago. It was just like a blip of an idea I had. And I was like, oh, well, that's like that's cool. Um, I should do something with that. And then I didn't do anything with it other than just like, 
I would think of it occasionally and be like, that's cool. I got to I got to figure something out with it. And it wasn't until last year that I sat down and, and started figuring out the actual story behind it. Because like, right. It's it's a trick where like for me writing pitches I've I've had to learn to back away and I have to write pitches from a character point of view because if I write it from a hook point of view then it just gets lost like you know your hook is cool but it can't carry a book so I have to figure out who are the living breathing people in this and like what is the whole story around this cool hook and that just took me a couple years to come up with. You know, then once I start, once we started working on it, I was like, oh, crap, like we kind of made a relevant book. <laughs> you really did. I don't know. If you know. <laughs> totally not our intent. It was just like I thought Kickstarter for Assassinations, really cool idea. But it's it's almost like, yeah, the world is sort of outpacing us. Uh, I was pointing out to uh, Ted and Rosie that I ran across some article about like all these alt-right people setting up. Uh, alternates to crowdfunding. So instead of Patreon, somebody had set up something called Hatreon. Are you kidding me? No. Um, Jesus Christ almighty. But I sent it to them and I was like, guys, we have to hurry. Like literally reality is like getting crazier than our book is. And that's a frightening endeavor. You think about that because, yeah. you know, when you hear that premise, you know, your first instinct should be, Oh, you know, that's so wild. I can't wait to see how that pans out. And I, I guess if, you know, to your credit or maybe not, it's like you hear that premise and go, Oh, damn, I can actually see that happening. That's yeah. Kind of fucked up to admit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's as I've been writing, it has been me kind of, you know, figuring that out of like, you know, the more I work on it, the more it makes sense as kind of an, an allegory for, well, I'm not even going to say allegory because that's way too highfalutin. But it's, it's <laughs> I guess it's kind of a mirror as to what's going on. You know, I'm not immune to any of this stuff. Like, you know, I, I am addicted to the news as much as anybody else. But, like, first and foremost, like, this book is not, like, a response to. Right. It's It's more, it's a response to, like, culture more than anything. You know, like, I think one of the big things that influenced me for Crowded was the idea of. There was that woman who a couple years ago, before she got on a plane, she tweeted, like, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, and they, like, fired her, like, before the plane even landed? Yeah, but, like, yeah, she was in the air for then, like, 13 hours or so, and this thing blew up, and basically everybody, you know, hated her. And, you know, to some degree, very rightfully, like, she said something really stupid and awful. But, yeah, like... And once she got off the plane, it was like, oh, the whole world is against me. And, like, I've been gone for 12 hours. You know, I've been flying across the, the globe. And, like, <laughs> so that I think that was, like, a thing that really, like, humanized it for me was, like, what would that be like to be, like, you just wake up one morning and suddenly thousands of people hate you and you have no idea. Like, yeah, it's just, like, I... It, it was just like a, it has way more to do with like sort of online behavior and sort of, you know, how we as a society are dealing with the Internet and all the massive ways it's sort of screwing up our lives uh, more than like, you know, oh, this is about a political party or anything because I, right. yeah, I don't want it to be that. And that's multifaceted. You know, someone, let's say in, in the case of the lady, you know, who was headed to Africa and, you know, made that awful tweet. That's kind of an easy thing to kind of pinpoint and say, that's a terrible thing to say. And yeah. especially when you're the face of a company, you're posting this publicly, 
not only are you putting this out there, but anybody in the world, you know, even accidentally can see that. You know, obviously it'll catch back because, I mean, we could be here all night talking about how many stories where people working for public entities have been on social media and posted terrible things sure. and then found themselves at a loss for a job and things like that. But there's also, I guess, the other, and I'm not necessarily defending her actions in any way, but I've also seen the flip side to that where even a very reasonable tweet or Facebook post, which is actually meant to be very well-meaning, has been met with the utmost vitriol and I'm just... Yeah, it's, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, it's not always necessarily someone saying something, you know, terribly racist, but sometimes even just being helpful and just have like this wave of people just, you know, throwing slings and arrows at them when it was actually meant to help somebody. Right, right. I mean, and yeah, you know, I mean, that's why I think the internet's just, it's a tricky place because you can, you know, everybody knows sort of what they mean in their head and, you know, everybody knows who they are to a great degree. And the, the weird thing about the internet is like, it's sort of a direct link between your your unconsciousness and the world. And so, you know, I've definitely, like, I've made a couple tweets where somebody pointed out, like, hey, dude, that's not really great, and here's why. And I, like, pulled back. Um, and I was like, oh, I didn't even see it from that perspective. And it's because, you know, I'm so locked into my head. So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the whole online thing is just, like, it makes it harder to... You know, somebody needs to build a translator that that sort of runs from your head to the keyboard and sort of checks with you before you hit send. Because, yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think, you know, some people just go from zero to 60. But I think, you know, a lot of it is, is definitely justified. And I think a lot also has to do with that. A lot of people don't ever want to admit that they're wrong or that they screwed up. Um, right. So their reaction becomes one of defensiveness and of like lashing out and. So, you know, it's like everybody's kind of got to, I mean, I'm still learning every day about like how to be a not terrible person on the internet. <laughs> but, oh, trust me though, but your, your feed, you know, I've seen far worse stuff. So, I mean, if that's supposedly how bad it's getting, that's, that's good because there's some doozies. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I try to at least like provide a good example, I guess. Um, I'm never like full on terrible. I'm just like. Occasionally I'm super boring or I just like I'm super trapped in my own head and it comes out weird. See, that though to me is normal. Like as far as, you know, just tweeting things that maybe seem random. I mean, shoot, I do it all the time. Right. And I, I guess it's a matter of, OK, what's your definition of or I guess people's definition of terrible. So, you know, like I said, even something as saying, hey. I really enjoyed, you know, let's say Star Wars Episode 8, or I didn't care for Episode 8. Those two statements right then and there, considering I've seen it kind of go back and forth, and it's like, okay, well, why didn't you enjoy it? Then I think you kind of get into it just, well, having the base opinion, to me, isn't always necessarily the worst part, but it's just like, okay, once you start elaborating on why you hate a movie, like... <laughs> yeah. Or things like that, where, you know, it's like, all right, there's certain arguments where you would think it would be reasonable... And then you get into a little bit more as to why someone either did enjoy something or didn't enjoy something. And it just kind of just goes ballistic. Yeah, no. And, you know, that's the whole weird thing. You know, like the weird thing about the Internet is like you get it, it, it like hijacks a lot of that. I think like in the case you're talking about, there is this weird uh, phenomenon where people mistake you not liking a thing for you not liking them. So, so much of the reaction comes from like, oh, well, I didn't like that. 
and it, it reads to a lot of people as like, oh, I think your opinion sucks, like, because I didn't enjoy that. And, and yeah. then it, like, causes them to sort of lash out and go, like, my opinion doesn't suck, like, and here's why. So, yeah, it's, I don't know, you know, it's a minefield, and, you know, we're all navigating best we can. Um, I just try to navigate on the side of caution and, you know, try to, like, do no evil. Because it's so instantaneous, you know, like, I, you know, in many of my verbal disagreements, you know, with people I love and care for, even if it's heated or not, like, I'm saying the words and they're coming out and just as they're coming out of my mouth, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, that did not come out well at all. Yeah. I can't retract that at, at all. You know, the, they heard it. They heard the affliction of my voice. Even if it's not how it meant to go down, that's exactly how it was perceived. And you can't take that back. And it's kind of crazy because I guess with social media, the same thing happens. But the difference is, even if you were to go, oh, shit, I was talking crazy. Let me delete that. In the 0.3 seconds it took you to delete that, several people could have screenshot of what you said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I feel like if anybody's screenshotting it, like, you said something really terrible. And so that's a breakdown in, like, your your internal editorial. Like, right. if it's screenshotable, then, like, okay, you should have definitely thought about five more seconds before you hit post. And I've even had situations where or seen them where it's not even necessarily like anything terrible, but just someone maybe even saying like, oh, I didn't necessarily say those exact words. And it's someone be like, oh, well, here it is right here. You're like, oh, yeah, crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, the, nothing truly disappears on the Internet. Right. And the Internet's basically, you know, like a battlefield unto itself. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of crowded is sort of bringing all that into real life. You know, it's like. Well, what if like real life was more like the internet, I guess. And like, you know, just suddenly millions of people were coming at you only now they're actually coming at you and they have weapons in their hands. <laughs> right. Again, I think that premise definitely hits on a lot of things that I'm really excited for. And speaking of things I'm excited for now, I don't know if you necessarily mean these to be literal, but I did check out a lot of the playlists that you've been posting for some of your various comics. Mm -hmm. And on one end, I was like, oh, you're into a lot of cool shit. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, you're into a lot of cool shit. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like the, that thing where it's like, I'm so excited. I didn't think anyone else listened to this band. And I'm like, there's another one. Right. <laughs> now I'm kind of like doing a stare down. I was like, all right, are we going to be good friends or are we going to be rivals? I can't tell <laughs> because I think your playlist might be better than mine. Uh, yeah, that's only by accident because I do a lot of hunting, like playlists are sort of the way that I keep my musical intake sort of uh, new and exciting because I'm not looking for stuff in the normal way that I look for it, which is that like, here's a band I like, I would like more stuff by them or for playlist stuff, you know, a lot of it is like, I'll add a song that I'm definitely thinking of for that book. And then I'll like, well, let's go see related artists or even I'll just like type in keywords. Like, I wonder if there's a song, you know, with this word uh, as the title. And, you know, sometimes it's lyrical content. Sometimes it's, you know, a heady mixture of all three where like, it's like, oh, this song basically is about the book. Like, you know, whoever wrote it and performed it didn't realize it, but they were basically singing about my comic. So, yeah, it's just a way and I like I found a lot of really cool stuff by, you know, doing that sort of exploration where I'm just sort of blipping around, finding cool stuff. And it keeps me excited about the books, especially if it's not a playlist loaded with music that I know, like it, it sort of keeps it more engaging. 
looking specifically at the ones for Crowded, well, first off, the fact that you have McCluskey on here, that alone pretty much sold me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, now, I could definitely see that. <laughs> Knowing that song of, I believe, what was it, uh, To Hell With Good Intentions. Yeah. Like, yeah, that one, I could definitely almost see even as an opening to a story like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I never make these with any idea that anybody else is. Lately, I've sort of come to the notion of like, oh, okay, well, once I am able to start talking about the book, I'll make this playlist public and I'll share it. But, you know, I, I live with these for like six, eight months. So, yeah, they just become a thing that I'm kind of curating on my own. And then it's like, oh, crap, now I have to show other people. Like, hopefully... <laughs> Um, you know, so yeah, it's like, hopefully I haven't picked like some really lame songs. No, quite the opposite. I was just more intrigued as to, you know, cause I actually was making like a, a list of some of like my picks between each one and, you know, was kind of interested to see how they related uh, specifically. Cause you know, with crowded, I also noticed the thermals on there and one of the really good indie rock bands from Portland. So I was like, all right, I could see, you know, the connection there. So then it's like, you know, you go there, you're screaming females, there's Courtney Barnett, but then you get to Tom Petty, and then you get to a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more out there, some pop-oriented ones like Grimes. So it was like this nice little mix that, to me, made sense. And I guess, you know, once the story comes out, I can kind of further connect those dots. And I just like that more people are being open about how music influences them even not even a direct like okay i'm getting my story directly from these songs but yeah it all kind of connects in, in a very like non-linear way but i do love when those two things get married yeah and music's you know always been a really big thing for me so i am the the comics writer nerd who like more often than not will name an issue after a song which i've seen seen some people like poo-pooing recently and i'm just like no i love it Wait, really? Wait, I, I don't, that's, no, I love that. I don't know, maybe that's just us, maybe we're weirdos, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely have been, like, I try to at least, like, alternate, so I'm not doing it with every single book in a row. But yeah, I think it's kind of cool, and I think especially, like, you know, if somebody is into the same things you are into, that's, like, sort of a added value i guess like you know from my book welcome back i i named all the song all, every issue after a song and like getting the reaction people from people it was like oh yeah like i think that's a totally perfect song or people like recommending other songs which is another way i find new music is like people going over these playlists and feeding me stuff but yeah it's just like i don't know i make music for myself or you know playlists for myself and and just Assume there's going to be at least one other weirdo out there who's into it as much as I am. <laughs> and you've met him. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, how are you? Because <laughs> then, like, you know, House of Muck through uh, Black Crown, I believe, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that being a horror book, and then kind of looking at the playlist and how much more aggressive it is than, let's say, something like Crowded, where, I mean, you had you know, Monster Magnet and Ministry and even like a band like Mission of Burma, which isn't necessarily the heaviest band, but like that's when I reach for my revolver. Sonically may not necessarily be one of the loudest songs ever, but that's lyrically gut-wrenching. Yeah, it's a mood thing. And, you know, I mean, another aspect to these playlists is also I sometimes like to do them as like what I imagine characters in the book would listen to. 
not so much for House of Muck because our two like our main character is a ten year old girl, so I don't think she's listening to like old ministry or even modern ministry. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess <laughs> yeah. see that was funny. Like like what ten year old doesn't listen to ministry? I was like, well, I guess there was me and maybe like three other people. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, like uh, definitely for like House of Muck, there is very much like a, a much more aggressive vibe to it. But then there are also like songs on there that are just like you know oh that's sort of nice and gentle but you know those are just like counterpoint to which is mostly just a wall of like kill die blood um (laughs) so so yeah it keeps me i never i mean i never like to lock into one mood too much on every playlist because i i like to play these while i'm actually writing the book so the more things sort of bounce around, the easier it's for me, I guess, for my brain to be agile and sort of roll with it. Well, that was going to be my next question, because I also know some of the creators I speak to that while, you know, they do enjoy music and it does influence them, like, you know, they can't actually work on their books while listening to certain music because it will kind of sway too much in one direction, especially when you're trying to hit a particular beat. Yeah, no, that's never been an issue with me. I mean, I definitely use music to sort of accentuate the stuff that I'm going for. Like for whatever reason, when I wrote injustice ground zero, I just decided that like the music that went with that was all like synth wave and sort of like, you know, dark synthesizer music, you know, that sort of revival stuff from the eighties that's been happening for the last few years. And I just made a huge ass playlist of, synthwave stuff and that was all i listened to the entire time i wrote it except for one issue where i listened to kanye's black skinheads on repeat for like <laughs> 30 times which i'm not sure why like there was no but it i think it, because aggre- it had the kind of aggression that i was looking for for that issue so you know i will definitely like stop the music if it's getting in the way but no i i love writing to music but i i mean i definitely do more of my writing or I did uh, when I worked at coffee shops, like the sort of like just ambient chatter of human life going on was always kind of my preferred soundtrack to writing. Interesting. And I guess it's also an added bonus that you're in an area that's a very good music town because it turns out a lot of the bands I listen to end up coming from Portland. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the, uh, you know, generally. I, I could listen to the music at a coffee. The, my regular coffee shop like actually plays pretty good stuff. I mean, they were playing the Courtney Barnett, Kurt Vile album a couple of days ago when I walked in. But yeah, mostly I it's it's just like sort of weird. I, I get into this f- sort of mood where I I need to be around people who are talking about like just banal everyday things, and I like sort of get into this state where I can push it out. I can still hear it, but none of the words track to me. And so I'm using that for as like leverage to like get my stuff done. It's a, it's a super weird process and it's all born from the fact that like for a couple of years, I could only write at this all night coffee shop, which was always like populated with just like, I mean, all coffee shops are populated with loafers, who are just like, well, I'm going to be here for the next four hours doing nothing. Um, Again, I feel like you're, <laughs> I feel directly attacked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm one of them, you know, speak from experience. Uh, but yeah, like I would go and just be like, okay, like I'm going to get my stuff done. And, you know, you'd be stuck next to somebody 
who is, you know, they were just having like the dumbest conversation in the world, but something about it, I learned to work with it. And then it became like, yeah, okay, keep talking about that stuff because like, it's almost like rage writing. Yeah. It's just like, I find this stuff like so stupid and I so don't want to hear it that like it fuels me to write faster and better. So yeah, not the healthiest of processes. I don't recommend it to other people, but it certainly worked for me. But not for nothing though, it makes sense as a writer and as someone who does, let's say, write dialogue and, you know, has to set the pace for a book or several books. It makes sense because that's something that, you know, for a long time I did was, you know, go to like either coffee shop or even, you know, like my school cafeteria. Just and you know, of course, people would think like, "Oh, he's sitting in the corner. He's that weird kid." It's like, no, but I would just take in all these ridiculous conversations. You're not like you're writing reactions to those specifically, but there's just something about just hearing basic human interaction. This is going to just sound odd as hell. That is quite inspiring, even though a lot of times it's dumb. <laughs> I hate to say yeah. it, <laughs> but no, same. Yeah, same here. Like, um. You know, and occasionally I will overhear something that's like, well, that is a really interesting turn of phrase. I'm going to steal that and put that in a book. So there are definitely some benefits here and there. But as a writer, I mean, I think I like sort of hearing the rhythms of conversations Mm -hmm. more than the content. So, yeah, you just kind of especially as somebody who spends most of his time like inside uh, working alone getting out there to where it's just like, okay, I'm going to let this kind of wash over me. It's like a good way to like recharge your batteries. And it's like, okay, well I'm still largely a hermit, but I'm going out and I'm doing my research on, on human people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like find these, these people I've heard so much about. I don't know if I trust them or not. Let's see how they work like from afar. And yeah, honestly, <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go back home. You know, because I remember for years, like, you know, these books on, like, how to write and how to write effectively. And it always be like, step one, find a, a quiet place to write. And I'm like, what the hell kind of advice is this? Yeah, like, I don't no. get anything from this because now all I can write is it's quiet. I don't hear anything. This uh-huh. is annoying. I don't want to write anymore. Like, no, I'm sorry. Like, maybe it works for some. No disrespect to anybody who's listening who digs that. But me, I can't fucking stand it. <laughs> Oh, it's death to me. Yeah. I I once rented a studio space here in Portland with uh, a bunch of other artists and writers. And I was in there for like two months. And if I went during the day, I got too invested in everybody's conversations. And if I went at night, it was stone silent and I couldn't get anything done because it was like, it's just like writing in the middle of a museum. Like everything just feels dead. Like, I mean, maybe that's it. It's just like, I need like the sense of like, I just need people to be alive near me, not necessarily to me, just sort of adjacent, <laughs> um, just to sort of know it's still going on and I can kind of connect with, you know, humanity uh, if I want to get really uh, pretentious. <laughs> oh, why not? Let's do it. I mean. Yeah, I did it. So uh, no turning back. And like I said, you can't pull that back now. That's <laughs> yep. not unless you told me to edit it out. That's a completely different story. <laughs> I'm glad that at least I, I was able to have that conversation because I, for a while, felt that I was the only one that did that same thing. You know, music pretty much rules everything. So once I see that, you know, there was all these playlists, I kind of went nuts one night. And, well, I didn't realize I also woke up my girlfriend because I'm pretty much, like, hand drumming along to, like, fucked up at one point. And I was just like, wait a minute, crap. Other, like, hum- other human beings, like, normal human beings are sleeping right now. It is four yeah. in the morning. I should probably turn this down. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm bad at like remembering like, all right. Uh, luckily, my apartment is sort of situated in a way that like I don't share a wall with anybody in any of the places where I'm listening to stuff. So and I've arranged my that was the first thing I did when I moved in here was like, OK, where can, where can I get my work done where none of my walls touches a neighbor's wall? Because I I tend to work until five or six in the morning. So. Oh, boy. Oh, Chris, thank you so much. Um, I didn't realize, like, wow, like, time flew, because I, I was so in tune to you know, hearing your process, especially with the music, and I'm like, oh, crap, I didn't realize we were uh, running low on time. <laughs> oh, yeah, it flew by. <laughs> so, okay, this is going to be a little odd, and um, bear with me here. On the past episode, um, I had a band on Lonely Rolling Stars, they're like a video game tribute band, and I made a joke to them about trying to figure out people's mindsets based on asking them what they thought about the game Dark Souls. And it was just kind of like this really fun exchange, so I want to see if this works, and then I have to get back to them, see, seeing as how we were talking about gaming earlier, what is your take on Dark Souls? Because I don't know if you've played it or not, or at least had an opinion either way. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I like that series. I, I have more of an opinion on Demon's Soul, the precursor to Dark Soul. Ooh, even better. Um, which was, yeah, a game I bought and immediately, like, hated. But, no, I like those games. Like, I think they're beautiful-looking games, and I think they're challenging in an interesting way. But they are, you know, of course, designed to be wildly frustrating, and they are. But there's something that I find enjoyable about them is just like, okay, well, you know, I've gotten killed by the skeleton four times. I, uh, you know, need to rethink my life choices. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy it. I, I like Bloodborne more, though. Just I think that like fits my aesthetic a bit more. But I, I like all those games. But ultimately, like, I, I phase out of them pretty quickly because there's no... There's no deep investment there. Right. I just know that like, oh, okay, cool. I got through this, which means like, oh, now everything's just going to get worse. <laughs> so, so yeah, like I'm much more into like open world games where I can just kind of wander around and do whatever I feel like. Okay. Thank you. Because I, that was something that I, I told him I would try out and I would come back with my findings. So like I said, I know that comes out of nowhere, but Trust me, I was going somewhere with that, and now I have to report back because the conversation I had was basically, depending on people's feelings regarding that series, would kind of like Loki tell you a lot about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's one of those games where it's like either you played it once or you played it a lot or I haven't even heard of it. I've noticed a lot of people have like really interesting opinions regarding that game. So I, it was kind of like this weird thing. It's like, what if this is kind of like this really interesting psych test? I think it is to some degree. Like, yeah. And that's a game that like, so Demon Soul, like I played almost to the end and then I just like hit some dragon and I was like, well, this sucks. Like, and then I just stopped playing. <laughs> and I mean, I still have that same save game, but it's the same with Skyrim. It's just like, it's too big. It's too much. Like I, you know, I'm playing Zelda right now, which is like, is also huge, but in a way that like makes sense to me. Right. Uh, so it's not like a game you have to like clock in. It's almost like doing a job. Yeah, and like the Zelda narrative is like, you know, it's pretty well established, and you know, you don't need a ton of information to get what it's all about. Whereas with Skyrim, like. You know, I put that down for a couple months and came back and I was like, I don't even know what side I'm fighting for. And like, am I with the weird racists or am I with the <laughs> the other group who are like anti weird racists? I don't even remember anymore. 
Yeah, they were both pretty awful. All I... <laughs> And the fact that they, the game made you pick a side, I'm like, why? These people did nothing to me. <laughs> and then I realized yeah. at that point, I'd rather just join the Dark Brotherhood or become a vampire instead. Yeah, I mean, the first time I played it, I had no idea I was like choosing sides. And then I was like, oh, cool. I went with like the white supremacist. Like, why? <laughs> they should have made that clear before <laughs> like, I was running with a group. <laughs> Oh man, I don't now. I will never be able to look at Skyrim the same way again. Oh my god, that is great, Chris! Thank you so much for taking the time out chatting. So, just to kind of hit back on that again, Johnny Blaze Ghost Riders out now through Marvel. Crowded is coming out this summer, and you said the uh-huh. updated date for Shanghai Red is now June, correct? Yeah, June twentieth is our first issue. Excellent. Okay, thank you so much. Um, but before we go, since we had been talking about social media and all these things, if you want to plug any uh, sites or anything, feel free to do so. Uh, yeah, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. I'm at XTOP. Uh, or you can go to my website, which is ChristopherSabella.com. Thanks a lot. And well, for the rest of us, you'll hear all of our social networking information after the ending theme. But that'll do it for this episode of Agent Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please visit us on the web at adrianhasissues.com where you can stream and download all of our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash adrianhasissues. Follow us on Twitter at adrianhasissues and on Instagram at adrianhasissuespod. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and the Laughable Podcast app. Thanks again!